Well, friends, uh, as we begin here this morning, I wonder how many of us in here have New Year's resolutions. Any New Year's resolutions out here? Maybe. You know, I know in first service, everybody's kind of nervous. Like, if I put my hand up, I'm going to be accountable to whatever it was that, uh, you know, I, I have a resolution for. But, um, you know, one of the things that I do when I actually have some brain space is my mind just wanders to, why do we do this? Uh, and so I had a little bit of brain space this past week, and I thought, why do we do New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, they're kind of weird sometimes to me, maybe not to you, but to me. feels a little bit futile. I'll explain why in a moment. But um, I did a bit, little bit of research. Granted, it's on the Internet, but I think we've proved that we believe pretty much everything on the Internet is true these days. So um, this is ironclad, whatever I say right now, because it came from the Internet. Um, so uh, bottom line, doing a little bit of digging, uh, I think what I can figure out is that New Year's resolutions began about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. And so think Babylon uh, or the Babylonians. Uh, They spent 12 days uh, celebrating the the spring barley harvest and the greatness of the god, I think you pronounce it Marduk. Um, He was the patron god of Babylon. And so what would happen on day four, that was kind of the highlight of this 12-day festival, is the emperor would be paraded to the temple of this god and he would have his emperor robes on and whatnot, and the high priest of this god would, ha- would dress however they thought this god would dress. Uh, and so the emperor would come up on stage, and he would basically take the emperor's like colors and whatnot off of him, and the high priest would slap him in the face twice. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like, right? And so, and so they would go through all that, and then the emperor would bow and recite a lengthy list of promises uh, and resolutions to that God and also to the state or the people that were sitting before him. And then the common people would also make those promises, things like, uh, I promise to pay off my debts or to be nice to my neighbor. And, and if they did that and they stuck by it, it was believed that this God and his cronies would be, you know, cool with them and bless them that year. And if they didn't, it would go south pretty fast, right? And so that uh, that was where it might have started. Fast forward to the Roman Empire, you had something very similar where this two-headed god named Janus, uh, he was the god of, all right, ready? The god of doors, gates, and bridges, as well as beginnings, endings, and transitions of all kinds. <laughs> that is exhausting. Um, but But either way, it makes sense that that is the god that they would offer their New Year's resolutions to and sacrifices, and so they would do the same thing. They would promise good behavior to this god. Well, as you leave then and you begin to approach modernity, um, it, it was believed that uh, probably the people who held the tradition, at least in some sense the best, were uh, the Jewish people as they uh, had a season of uh, reflection and repentance uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In the more modern era, the 17th and 18th centuries, you saw the in Protestantism, the Puritans were encouraged to lay off the ale uh, on New Year's so they could reflect on the previous year and, and look ahead to the new year. And John Wesley instituted what were called watch nights uh, or covenant renewal services, which are still practiced in some Methodist traditions today. Uh, and then, you know, all that kind of gets mashed up into what we do right? Where we like look in the mirror or step on the scale and we're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, need to do something different this year, right? So we go on the whole 30 or we sign up for a gym membership or we do a dry January uh, or we, uh, you know, maybe have a Bible reading plan that year or whatever it may be. But but we begin to uh, dig into those various resolutions. I have some bad news for you. I'm so sorry to deliver this, but But there are a couple of studies that have studied our resolutions. And uh, I'll just share some of the results. 2007 study from the University of Bristol is that 88% failed to achieve their goal. Ouch. 
ouch, right? That kind of hurts the team. How about this one? Uh, other studies show that a quarter bomb after the first week of January, a third after the first month, less than half are still trucking after the halfway point of the year, and I think it's about 8% in this study uh, actually finished the year, all right? Happy New Year. Um, so so what's, you know, what, what do we conclude from all of this? Well, the moral of the story, for me at least, is go back to the gym in February when you actually have some parking spots and everybody's kind of left, right? So, um, you know, it, it's funny, though. It's, it's kind of indicative to me. Dwight Eisenhower, I read this this week, uh, you know, D-Day had this big plan, and then it was said that he scrapped the plan the moment that the troops hit the beach. Uh, and one of his quotes is, um, today's, or, or a plan is nothing more than today's best guess, Right? Uh, and then tomorrow is kind of a reaction to whatever happened to that first day. I think in the Bible, uh, I think that's Proverbs 16, where it's we, um, you know, make our plans, but God actually is the one who establishes our steps. And, and so, look, if you've got some New Year's resolutions, good for you. Stick with them, right? I pray that you're part of that 8%, right? Press on. I personally no longer do the New Year's resolutions thing, although, although I'm saying this publicly, I think I'm going to run an 8K if my body holds together in about seven weeks. It's not a resolution, it's just a goal because if I don't do it, I'm in trouble uh, from a lack of physical activity at this point. But, but what I um, like to do during this time is I like to look back and reflect on the previous year uh, and then look ahead. And, and what I recognized when I looked back on 2021 is that it was basically the toddler version of 2020. Uh, it just grew up a little bit more. Uh, but, but I learned some things about myself. And, uh, you know, um, it's it said that our culture, we no longer reflect, right? We just kind of keep moving from thing to thing to thing. Uh, but it's been good for my soul to go and say, what, what happened this past year? I have a, a journaling app that uh, I went back and I just looked at and said, where, where was my head and where was my heart this year? And, and then I begin to formulate prayers to say, okay, God, I'm going to ask you uh, that you would work in my life in certain ways this next year based upon what I was seeing here in the previous year. And so um, today, I, this is not going to be kind of a typical New Year's sermon where I'm going like, here's where we're going in 2022. Who's coming with me? Uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm kind of going to you know, open my journal to you a little bit and say, hey, here's, here's some of the broken areas of my heart uh, that I've seen this year, uh, and here are the prayers that have come from that. And the reason I'm sharing it with you is because these are some of the prayers that I'm going to pray for us as well as a church as we move forward into this year. And it's not a cop-out that this is just a prayer instead of, you know, me having my five smart goals and action items that I'm going to do, but but rather, I think it's leaning on what Philippians 2.13 says, that uh, it is God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Uh, what that means is, is our ability to actually please God and accomplish things for him, even that desire and ability comes from him, that we would will and work for his good pleasure. And so here's my prayers. I'm going to read them to you. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. And then what I try to do is I try to bury these prayers in Scripture uh, so that I'm not just praying according to Anthony. Uh, but I'm praying according to God's word. And I'm not going to like unpack these in detail, but I'm just going to read them so we can sit them. You can write them down if you want. Think about them later. Uh, but here we go. So here's the first one. The first one's pretty, pretty quick, but it's fill me with a vision of hope. It's fill me with a vision of hope. And, and this comes from a, a place of real deep struggle for actually having hope. Uh, I'm confessing that to you. Uh, it has been, it was a rough end to the year for me. And I just sat there when, you know, this virus uptick happened and I'm making new videos and 
There's still continued unrest where uh, I'm needing to unsubscribe from denominational Facebook groups because I just can't handle the amount of venom that's being spewed. When I see sin, when I see uh, different sorts of struggle in my friends' lives, and I go, Lord, why isn't the gospel working here? Hopelessness can set in. And so I just sat there and I was like, Lord, what passage would you have me just pray and ask that you would embed it in my heart as I head into 2022. And, and the one that came to my mind is the one that uh, was a vision of a man who never saw all of its complete outworkings. In fact, uh, he was on his own little house arrest of sorts, uh, isolated on an island uh, where he was persecuted and sent because he was a follower of Christ, and it was John. And so here's the vision that he had, and this is the vision that I'm trying to pray into my own heart. It's Revelation 21. He says, and this is the vision that he had, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, and this is Jesus speaking, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, may that be my vision this next year. May that be our vision for this next year, that he is already, he will one day and already in the business of wiping away every tear, of establishing relationship with people who really don't want anything to do with them, who will one day make all things new and has already begun that process as Jesus has arrived. And I just sat for a whole day thinking about those last two words, trustworthy and true. And so that's my first prayer. Fill me with a vision of hope. Here's my second one. Make me a faithful exile. Make me a faithful exile. Well, Gamage, that's just a pastor prayer. What on earth does that mean? That is weird. What does it mean to be a faithful exile? Well, uh, let me just, again, tell you where that came from. Uh, as, you know, again, continue to walk through uh, our day and time. Uh, there is this instinct in me to do one of two things when it comes to my faith and how do I live it out. It's either to kind of synchronize with the culture around me, right, to, to get as angry as the culture around me gets, to, um, to medicate myself and numb myself with whatever it may be to, to what's going on, to just synchronize in that way, or to separate from the culture around me. To just go, oh, let's just walk away from it. I don't need to deal with it at all. I'm, I'm just tired of this world and this culture. I'm just going to go do me, Right? My temptation is to either synchronize or separate. But I think God gives us in his word this uh, category of exile to help us understand how he desires us to engage with the culture around us. Now, there's multiple themes. As we read our Bibles, God's really kind to us to give us categories that human beings can understand about how we relate to God. Now, some of these still feel a little distant, but one of the ones you may be familiar with is kingdom. Have you ever heard about kingdom or read about it when you're reading God's word? Uh, well, it's this picture that he gives us to say, hey, this is how we engage with the God of the universe. So there's a king, there's his subjects, there's his kingdom and the outworking of the king's character, right, uh, within the kingdom. Uh, another picture they give uh, that God gives us in Scripture is a picture of covenants. Covenants was simply a way of people relating to one another. Uh, and so like bigger kingdoms relating to smaller kingdoms, individuals relating to one another when they make promises to one another. And so covenant is another picture we have. But here's the third one that, that I'm going to focus on here is, is that of an exile. Uh, there are both Old and New Testament books that talk constantly about God's people being 
exiles. An exile is simply a state of being barred from one's own native country. And, and Scripture talks about us, if we were a follower of Christ, as being an exile. This is not our ultimate home in its current form. The picture of it in the Old Testament, you go to the prophets, right? Especially the major prophets, uh, books like Daniel and Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Uh, they're talking to God's people when they're in exile. And then uh, Peter, in the New Testament, brings it forward and calls the New Testament church a group of exiles. And so here's the two-part Uh, what it means to be an exile or being a faithful exile. The first is to live differently. Being an exile means inherently that we live differently than the culture around us. Here's a couple pictures of that. 1 Peter 1. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's another one, one chapter later. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, so so here's... Where I want to go with this, part of the reason it's important to live differently is because God, if we've claimed faith in Christ, has actually saved us from something. And part of what he saves us from is the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. There's somebody who I follow on Twitter who um, is an academic, and, and he said, yeah, is any, any of us who do cultural analysis uh, feel like it's kind of a waste of time these days? The bottom line is... Um, People, uh, people are essentially opposing God and worshiping their own desires. That's what we do by default. We oppose and fight against God, and we worship our own desires. And what Peter's telling us here is, is those desires actually are waging war against our soul, and it's destructive to us. And so just synchronizing our lives with the culture around us is not a, a good position to hold. It's destructive, actually. And God not only stops there, but he goes back and he says, hey, I actually rescued you from that. I ransomed, I paid a high price to get you away from those ways that are destructive to your soul. And that price is with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There have been so many over the course of the year uh, who are battling and walking with their adult children in particular as they deal with addictions. Addictions that are destroying their lives. And, and there's one uh, friend of mine who basically took out a second mortgage on their home to get their child into a rehab facility to save their lives because their, their life was going to end in the way it was going. And one of the most tragic things that happens is that typically, I think on average, it's about seven trips to rehab or so uh, before some of these sorts of things take. And there's change where people aren't running back to the things that are destroying their lives. And it's even more horrifying when you realize that, uh, you know, the parents put up a second mortgage on the house to save them from it. And so in a way, that is a picture of God saying, don't run back to the things that destroy your soul. You were ransomed from it at a high price. And so my prayer in this is, Lord, open my eyes to where I've fallen asleep to the things you saved me from that I'm running back to. Because, friends, I do it all the time. So do you. Here's the second part of being a faithful exile is, is 
we're not only to live differently, but also live for the good of the culture around us. And so it's not quite complete separation from the world around us. Here's an Old Testament picture of it. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. God's people were literally in exile. And it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, your, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you as an exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So it's saying, be be enough a part of the culture that that you are adding to its welfare. Here's the New Testament version. These are the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be destroyed? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt adds flavor. It preserves. He's called us into the world to be lights, to share the gospel, and to do things like create beauty and culture, to help those who are suffering. And so, friends, our temptation is to become separatists, to get in our escape pod and say, well, the world's going to burn, and I'm just going to sit here and wait for it. And that's not good for our souls either, and that's not what it looks like to be a faithful exile. And what convicts me is I'm a pastor, so this makes a little bit more sense, but I just spend way too much time with Christians. I'm sorry, I love y'all. But way too much time. Just being with non-believers, sharing the gospel, listening and saying, what does it look like for us to be a, a faithful church in this community? And just getting a different perspective? It's part of my prayer this year. You know, the next two sermon series is actually kind of an overflow of my wrestling with this in my own life. We're going to talk about justice for the next three weeks. That won't be controversial at all. No issues. That would be a piece of cake. I can't wait to do that. That would be great. Uh, And then we're going to move into the book of Daniel, which is all about uh, exilic living. And so here's the third prayer. Lord, make me one who builds up. Make me one who builds up. And that's in my own family. That's in the church. That's among my friends. That's among my community. You know, before Christmas, you know, we're dealing with some of these COVID protocols again, and, and I send out this really, like, serene video with me in front of my Christmas tree. Right? It's like the one corner of the house that wasn't destroyed by boxes and gifts and things like that, right? But, but you know, like, that was really what was going on in my heart, just a serene Christmas tree scene. That's just a lie. That is not true at all. If, if it was really what was going on what behind me was what was going on in my heart was like a dumpster on fire and me hanging on to like a pendulum as I swing back and forth. I don't know. I don't know, right? That is my heart right now. You know, I live in this world where I demand my rules of life on everyone else. I do that. Where I demand my rights, my comfort, my control, my self-righteous behavior. I do it right. You don't. That's me. Behind the veneer of the Christmas tree. That's what goes on in my heart. And you know what's funny? Is my self-righteousness changes. You know, Sarah and I went out to, for a date. To, we went to Starbucks and we're driving and I'm sitting there railing against something. Maybe someone. I'm like, well, blah, blah, blah. I am angry, right? And then we go and we talk. And on the way back, I'm like, you know, maybe I think we should do this differently. Totally opposite of where I was angrily kind of pounding my fist. On the way, I am so fickle. You are so fickle. We are a fickle bunch. 
Sometimes all it takes is us sitting with another image bearer of God to just change our mind. Right? And that's actually a good thing. The fickleness drives me crazy in my own heart. I don't know if it drives you crazy. Sorry if I offended you calling you fickle. It's just a thing. But my prayers make me one who builds up. Where did that, well, that's where it comes from. What does that mean? Well, the two parts of that for me is, Lord, make me faithful as one who builds up by what I exercise. Not when I exercise. I'm not hopping on a peloton here, but it's, it's by what I exercise. Here's where I get this. 1 Corinthians 8. Now, what's going on is, is the church in Corinth are kind of fighting over meat, right? They're fighting over the food that they eat, okay? Um, people are saying, I'm not sure we should eat this meat uh, that's offered to idols. And then other people, the more mature Christians, are like, it's fine to eat the meat. And Paul enters into the fray. <laughs> he says this, now concerning food offered to idols, we all know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What he's talking about is all of us possess knowledge. If you looked at verse 4 there, is he's saying, hey, we all know that idols aren't real and that God is one. And so it doesn't really matter that there's meat put before the idols. We can eat it. It's okay. And he's saying, y'all being mature, y'all have that knowledge. Way to go. But that knowledge, that right belief, is actually kind of puffing you up. And, and you're missing that last part. We're not building each other up. We've actually missed the love part of this. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, take care of, uh, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, can you imagine never eating bacon again? That's tough, right? But that's what he's saying. So why did I say by what I exercise? If you go back to this verse, it says, make sure that this right of yours, that term in the Greek is exousia. It sounds like exercise. Other places it's translated as power or authority. Or here, it's this idea of right. And so in a way, it's giving a nod to the reality that each of us have this God-given authority or power or right in our own lives. Right? But what he's saying we do with the right is actually quite different than what I think we have superimposed upon that word from our individualistic American culture. You do a quick word study in Paul's writings on the term right or freedom. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Galatians 5, they exist. He talks about them as being good things. But he also says we must be willing to lay them down for the sake of another. That's the point he's making there. You know, don't go much further into reading about, he's talking to me. I'm talking to me. And you can interpret this however you want in your own context. But as I've had to study it in my own wrestling, this is what I've unpacked, particularly from Paul. And friends, I am often not willing to lay down my power, right, and authority for the sake of others. It's a wrestling match in me. Here's the second part one who builds up by what I exercise, but also by what I lose. By what I lose. You see, true building up usually comes from loss. It's not just not exercising our rights, but it's often by laying down or actually losing something for the sake of another person. Let me read you kind of the, uh, the, 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 the peak of the mountain verse when it comes to this, and it's looking at Jesus Christ himself. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid down his exousia, his rights, to save us. So let me just say this, and and this was a sobering thought for me as I was meditating on this verse this week. The heart that demands and screams my rights is one that has either forgotten the gospel or never knew the gospel to begin with. The heart that screams my rights is one that has either forgotten the gospel or never believed the gospel to begin with. Why? Well, because we were that wretched and bad that the God of the universe had to lay it all down for us. That's the gospel. So, Lord, make me one who builds up by what I exercise and by what I'm willing to lose. Here's the last prayer. Lord, make me reliant. Friends, I am remarkably self-reliant. It is a flaw. You know, in, in my reading for this doctor of ministry that I begin here in about a week's time, uh, there is this one category that has just hit me like a ton of bricks. Overfunctioner. Over the course of a lot of counseling, uh, there is a phrase that I have carried with me from childhood in my own family to the different ministry roles that I've had to workplaces, and it's this. I am the glue that holds it all together. It's the great lie. I believe I am the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. You probably know this already, but I'm not (laughs) at all. He is, and he wants me to be completely reliant upon him. The two ways for me that I'm wrestling this out this year is reliant in his word and reliant in prayer. Here's, Here's reliant in his word. This is from Deuteronomy 8. This is Moses writing to God's people in or after uh, their time in the wilderness. Depends on how you're reading it. But it says this, He, God, humbled you, God's people, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God, of the Lord. Now you may be like, that's kind of a weird verse to to go be reliant on God's word, but, but it just has this picture in it about how reliant we actually are. Did you know that you're going to have to eat lunch today? Do you know what that immediately makes you? Reliant. You're reliant on the food chain. <laughs> if you didn't eat for the next week, you'd be dead. You can't sustain yourself. You have to have food. And what God is saying here is spiritually, you are not self-reliant either. In order to survive spiritually, your soul needs God's word. You cannot go six months without it and expect to be spiritually alive. Full stop. Full stop. My friend Matt Smethurst wrote a book called The Ten Heart Postures Before Approaching Your Bible. And he has this quote, If you read your Bible, you'll never get the impression that it is meant to be a mere hobby in your life. It is meant to be your food. Your soul will wither and die without your Bible. 
And that's true because we forget who God is and we forget who we are as a result. And we spiritually starve. That is a temptation of mine to go, I got this. I'll study my Bible to preach a sermon on Sunday, but not to deeply internalize it and remember who my God is and who I am in Him. Here's a second area of reliance is prayer. It's prayer, and, and again, I'm relying on my friend Matt with some of these categories, but I've written these down. I've stuck them in my Bible so I can revisit it often, and he borrowed these from John Piper, but, but it's the IOUs of prayer. First, the I, and these are all from the Psalms. As we pray, we pray, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Friends, the reality is our hearts are bent in the wrong direction. You think about a satellite dish at the top of a, of a house or something, if it's pointed away from the satellite, it's going to miss the signal. The reality is, is it reveals that it is effortless for our heart, satellite dish, to be pointed in the wrong direction and not towards God. It is effortless for me to think about myself. Effortless. It's a chore sometimes to think about God. Here's the O. Open my eyes, that should be my. Open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of your law. Friends, even as we read our Bibles, we must be asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to His inspiration. You can watch the History Channel all day long and they are quoting Scripture and it's taking you straight away from the God of the universe. Same Bible. We need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. Spurgeon would say this, Texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures till you open them with the key of prayer. What a cool quote. How about the you? Unite my heart to fear your name. Friends, our hearts are so fragmented. They are so fragmented. Have you ever sat down to like read your Bible? You're like, I'm going to do it. It's January 1st. I'm going to go through my reading plan. I know I'm starting in Genesis again, but I'm going to do it. And you sit down and you're like, in the beginning, God, I kind of want lucky charms. Why do we get rid of Nick Foles and Joel Embiid's hurt a lot? And why did mom jeans come back? And, and you're just like all over the place, right, in your mind when you sit down and think, right? Am I right? Maybe the mom jeans thing, it doesn't enter your mind. But, but, but like, isn't that our hearts? We need to beg the Lord to unite our hearts to fear his name. We fear a lot of other things, don't we? Here's the S. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Friends, we're all looking for satisfaction and happiness, right? 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 Yeah. The broken part is that we are all seeking it by default outside of God. And so part of our prayers is to sit down every day and say, satisfy us with you. Not fulfill an appetite. Appetites always come back. They always come back. We are never satisfied. Beg the Lord to satisfy us with His steadfast love, not another love that will be fleeting. These are my prayers for my own heart. These are my prayers for us this year that we be made completely reliant, that we be sobered, by the fact that we got to eat lunch and we need him, right? And so here's what I'm going to do. It's kind of a weird finish to a sermon. We're going to have four quiet moments, minutes, literally four quiet minutes here to end the time.
The extroverts are dying inside right now. The introverts are like, give me more, right? He's going to feel long, and that's okay. These might be the only four quiet minutes you have this whole next week as we get catapulted into this new year. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to break it up in two segments. The first one, I just want you to sit there for a second and maybe just say, Lord, is there any prayer you want me to pray for myself? And just listen. And maybe tap it out on your phone or write it down. But but just sit there and kind of just be quiet. I know it's painful for some of y'all. Painful for me. But just try it. And at the two-minute mark, I'm going to transition you, and I'm going to give you two more solid minutes to silently pray at your seat. You don't have to get in a group. Y'all are like, oh, man. But just silently sit at your seat and pray that prayer over yourself and pray for whatever else comes to mind. So I'm going to be a man of integrity and put you on a clock, right? Now, because I'll actually shorten it because I just can't handle silence that well. So I'm an extrovert, and if you didn't know that. So uh, let me just give you two minutes. Just consider, sit in silence and consider, what's, what's a prayer for me this year? And then I'll transition us to two minutes of praying. So uh, let's just start right now. Two minutes. Ready? Go. All right, for the next two minutes, take whatever it was that was hitting your heart, that prayer, and talk to God about it. Pray it back to Him. And then if you run out of stuff to say to Him about that, then talk to Him about whatever else is heavy on your heart, and then I'll break us in two minutes and close us in prayer. Oh Lord, it is only fitting that we begin a new year by sitting in silence for four minutes, crying out to you. Father, part of the reason this feels weird is that we live in a self-reliant culture that says, I've got this, and we never stop as a result. We don't consider our hearts, and we don't consider the one behind everything. And so, Lord, I pray that you hear these reliant prayers that we raise to you this morning. Lord, I know that there are some of my friends out here who are like, I don't do this, and I'm not sure if I did that the right way. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would remind them. Then Romans, you tell us that um, whatever prayer we utter to you, your Holy Spirit is active in interceding and taking that, and in between here and the Father's ear, turning it into something that is pleasing to you. And Lord, that in and of itself is a picture of grace. Father, would you make us a church? Would you make me a pastor that is ever more reliant on you, on your word, in prayer? And Lord, would you just guide us through this new year and give us these things that we've asked of you this morning for your glory and Lord, for the good of this whole world who is desperate for you. Thank you for this time and we pray these things in your name. Amen.